Although Josh read verses 16 and 17, I somewhat regret to inform you that I'm only going to preach verse 16 this morning, and next week we'll consider verse 17. Uh, It's been another one of those instances where there's so much in just the one verse that we don't have enough time to talk about the two. So Romans 1.16 is our text this morning. And in that verse, Paul makes a really astonishing assertion. He says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Have you ever wondered why Paul makes that assertion? He's an apostle, after all, writing to a bunch of Christians. So why does he need to describe himself as unashamed of the gospel? That would make sense before the crowds and the riots and everyone else. But why does he need to tell Christians that he's unashamed of the gospel? I want to suggest that Paul made this claim because people were shaming him for the gospel. More than that, his readers were being shamed for the gospel, and unlike Paul, they capitulated to the shame. They were ashamed of the gospel. The reality of shame in connection to gospel proclamation and identity is not an issue that's unique to ancient Rome. Although the sources of shame and its manifestations are different, I want to suggest that we too are susceptible to the problem of shame. For that reason, in this sermon, we're going to consider the problem of shame, we'll consider the solution to the problem of shame, and then finally we'll consider the promise of salvation that extends to all that removes our shame. So let's start by talking about this problem of shame. When we talk about shame, we need to be clear that sometimes we experience shame for things we shouldn't be ashamed of. At other times, we're not ashamed when we should be. All right? So sometimes you experience shame and you shouldn't. Other times you're not ashamed and you really should be. We've all seen people in those circumstances. But we also need to distinguish between the external reality of shame and the internal experience of shame. So shame as a verb coming from the outside as a public reality. So someone can be shamed by another person. And when someone is shamed, they're humiliated and they lose status because of a particular act that they've committed, an attitude that they have, or a belief that they hold. So when a person violates the social norm, they receive shame from the community. But then, in response that person who's being shamed externally will experience shame internally. They'll feel pain, a loss of status, humiliation. That's a private reality of shame. And the two aren't always correlated. Sometimes no one is shaming somebody, but they feel humiliated inside. Um, So if you've ever had to give a talk at your work or give a public presentation, no one's shaming you, but you might feel really humiliated when you can't can't pronounce a word properly. Uh, This happens to me all the time when I'm preaching. I can't speak anymore, and I internally feel humiliation, shame, even though no one's shaming me publicly. Sometimes it's possible for shame to be exerted on someone, and they refuse to internalize that shame. And as you can suspect, that's Paul's situation. People are shaming him 
from the outside, but he refuses to accept that shame, to validate it, and to internalize it. He, he stands unashamed of the gospel. Now, this concept, and here I go, not being able to pronounce things, and it, you know, so we're seeing this in application. The, the concept of shame is a big deal for Paul, especially in the book of Romans. It shows up multiple times, and it adds a lot of depth to this assertion, this declaration that he's not ashamed of the gospel. So I, I want to show you a few of these instances. When, when you get to Romans, you get this sense that nobody wanted to be shamed in their community, and more importantly, they didn't want to be shamed before God. I'll say it in a weird way. They wanted God to be proud of them. They didn't want to be ashamed in God's presence. And, and a lot of Paul's readers thought the way that they could make God proud in them or proud of them was to obey Torah, especially circumcision. But Paul is trying to argue, no, the way that you make God proud of you is by your connection to Jesus. It's only through Jesus that you can stand unashamed before God. So Romans 5.5, 5, and this hope the hope that is in Christ Jesus, will not shame us because God's love has been poured out on our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Again, in Romans 9, 33, the one who believes on him, Christ Jesus, will not be put to shame. Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him, Christ, will not be put to shame because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. And then the concept of shame shows up in other places. So think about Romans 14, where you have these individuals who are um, debating about Torah practices. And Paul says, don't judge one another because everyone is going to stand before God and the Lord is able to make him stand. The, the concept there is those people don't want to be ashamed before God. Now, when Paul's readers are hearing this, there are different groups hearing it in different ways. One group are people who grew up practicing Judaism. And, and they are tempted to think that in order to stand unashamed before God, they need to maintain old covenant practices. They need to obey Torah. They might even need to go beyond Torah. Only eat vegetables. Don't drink wine. And above all, make sure that you are participating in circumcision. They took pride in their Jewish identity as if it made them more valuable before God as if it would make God proud of them. They were motivated in this way because all of their family members and friends who didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah and maintained their, their current practice of Judaism would have shamed them for departing from it. So you see what I'm saying? They all want to stand unashamed before God, but they're being shamed by their community, and they're being convinced by their community that they'll stand ashamed before God if they depart from Torah practices. Now, another group in the church was really certain that Jesus was the only way to stand shamelessly before God. For that reason, they left their old lives behind. Roman citizens who once worshipped other gods in idol temples and lived according to the sinful moral standards of Rome revoked their allegiance to these false gods, and radically changed their morality. And that kind of change came with consequences. It came with lost income, respectability, broken friendships, 
and troubled family relationships because their pagan social communities would have looked down on them for rejecting their old way of life. They would have publicly shamed them for their new beliefs and practices. So Paul wants to assure these people, you ought to be ashamed of your previous way of living, and you won't be shamed before God. So in Romans 6, 21, he reminds them, what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. So he wants them to understand you aren't going to be shamed by God. You ought to be ashamed of your sin, even if your fellow previous pagans are shaming you for your change of life. I want to suggest that modern Christians experience shame associated with their gospel beliefs and identities and practices in related, though distinct ways. Okay? So we experience shame too. In Paul's society, I'm going to list a few ways. In Paul's society, desiring the favor of the gods was normal. Um, So Christians, however, were shamed because they rejected all of the gods that were out there in favor of just the one God. And they were further shamed because this one God was weak because he died. Well, it's different for us. In our day, Christians are just shamed for believing in God at all. It's ridiculous to believe in God. But in both cases... The simple identification of being a follower of Jesus elicits shame from the outside. So do you relate to that? Are you ever embarrassed or humiliated um, simply because you identify as a follower of Jesus? If so, you're not alone. I think every one of us has experienced that at some point or another. We either have experienced people externally shaming us, or we just have this inner sense of shame and embarrassment to identify as a Christian. Some of us may be living with that sense of shame, and we're so used to it that we don't even realize we're living ashamed of the gospel anymore. Now, for most of us in here, I I would imagine that you identify closely with those who converted from pagan practices to Christianity. In your decision to follow Jesus, you have set aside a a set of moral standards that the world loves. You probably have friends and family members and co-workers who don't believe in Jesus and can't understand why you would affirm a Christian sexual ethic or refuse to find your identity in a political party or why you would give away your money to a good cause for the gospel of Jesus instead of building bigger barns and storehouses. So whether you're in junior high or facing retirement or somewhere in between, you probably face the kind of peer pressure and public shame that causes you to be kind of embarrassed about the gospel. So your commitment to Christ probably costs you echoing the experience of many Roman Christians. Think also in our church, I would imagine that many of you also identify with the Jewish Christians to some extent, you identify with these Jewish Christians who are sh- were shamed by their family members because they adopted a different religious practice. So some of you grew up in certain brands of Christianity that taught either implicitly or explicitly that to avoid shame before God, to make God proud of you, you needed to adopt a litany of extra biblical practices, like using only one certain Bible translation. Or, for some of you, speaking in tongues or showing that you have some miraculous gifting. 
or, or that you can get God's favor only by maintaining an arbitrary set of standards. I think a lot of us have come from Christian backgrounds where religious practices were set up, and if you fit that mold, then you could be sure God would be proud of you. And now, as you're operating in a bit of a different world and not maintaining those same practices, you might experience a measure of shame even from others who identify as Christians. It's an odd thing, but that's really what was going on in the Church of Rome as well. So regardless of the source of shame, what should Christians do when they experience that shame in connection with their gospel allegiance? I want to suggest that at a minimum, Paul's assertion that he is unashamed of the gospel teaches us that we can and really that we must refuse to internalize whatever external shame we experience. Whatever shame we receive from the outside we can and must refuse to validate by internalizing and living shamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, before we move on, I want to point out three consequences of internalizing shame. So you might not be convinced that living ashamed of the gospel has ramifications for your life as a Christian, but it does. Uh, this, you know, we could think of any other analogy. If you're ashamed of who you are and what you do, you're going to live a really broken and unfulfilling life. So if you, you know, this is a dumb example. If, if you're a soccer player and you're ashamed of being a soccer player, are you ever going, going to actually go out and play soccer? No. If you're a Christian and you're ashamed of the gospel, will you be gospelized? I want to suggest no, and there are three primary consequences that will come from internalizing shame of the gospel. Disconnection from gospel power, disunity in the assembly, and debilitation of gospel witness. Let's think about each of these three briefly. First, if you internalize shame connected to the gospel, you will become disconnected from gospel power. So the consequence of internalizing shame is self-evident. Paul declares that the gospel is God's power for salvation. But if Christians are ashamed to own their identity as gospel people, they'll necessarily distance themselves from the gospel. Instead of making the gospel central and valuable to them, they'll displace the gospel through shame. And in its place, the opinions and values of whoever or whatever it is that dislodged the gospel will reign instead. Instead of the gospel's power working in your life, the power of whatever that source of shame is will be at work in your life. For that reason, Christians must remain unashamed of the gospel. Because if we become ashamed of the gospel, we'll begin to slink away from the Son of God in power and will come under the power of that shame. Jesus warns his followers about this kind of behavior in this kind of shame in Luke 9. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory. If we internalize shame connected with following Jesus, we disconnect ourselves from Jesus. We disconnect ourselves from the gospel's power. And second, when we internalize shame, we create a breeding ground for disunity in the church. And this is what was happening in Rome. 
in the Roman church, Jewish Christians who were being shamed by their Jewish communities started to capitulate to that shame and started relying on Torah practices again, especially circumcision, while at the same time, pagan converts were being shamed by their former communities, and they were being tempted to adopt their former ways of life. As a result, both groups lost sight of Jesus' supremacy and made the opinions of their pagan friends or their Jewish friends reign supreme instead. And the result was disunity in the church. And the same thing happens in the modern day. When Christians lose the firm conviction that an allegiance to King Jesus is enough to enter the throne of grace with boldness, they also lose the deep unity that comes from a shared allegiance to Christ. So I would suspect that virtually any time you identify disunity in a church, somewhere along the way, people have lost sight of the gospel, and they, they have this kind of subtle shame that makes them elevate the values and opinions and processes of something else above Jesus and the gospel is a way to find favor before God. Third, internalizing shame in connection with the gospel results in a debilitated gospel witness. This just makes sense. When Christians internalize shame about the gospel of Christ Jesus, they lose their ability to speak the gospel to others. That's natural. If you're ashamed of something, you don't wear it on your sleeve. You don't speak about it. You don't operate in it in a public-facing way. We hide things that are shameful to us. And if we're ashamed of the gospel, we'll hide it as well. We must refuse to internalize whatever sense of shame we feel in connection to our gospel identities. And we must refuse to validate whatever that source of shame might be. Regardless of whether that shame is coming from self-professed pagans or self-professed Christians, we must be unashamed of the gospel. So that's point number one, the problem of shame. Point number two, the gospel solution. The gospel solution. I've already mentioned that Paul refused to internalize the shame that he received in every place that he went. So we need to ask, why is it that Paul could refuse to internalize the shame? And he gives us one reason. It's because he was confident that the gospel was the power of God for salvation for all who believe. For that reason alone, he could refuse to be ashamed of the gospel. And if we're going to tie into that kind of confidence, we need to consider more carefully what those words mean. I'm, I'm afraid that we hear that verse in those terms so often that they've lost their meaning in what's now a cloud of ambiguity. So, so we need to clarify some things, particularly when it comes to the term gospel and the term salvation. And I, I cannot express to you how important I think these two terms are. This, if you've been part of our church for any length of time, I, I hope you don't feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, but, but if there's one thing I could try to convince you of is to adopt more careful understandings of the gospel and a better picture of salvation than what I think most of us usually operate with. If we fail to do this, I think we lose the Christian faith altogether. Um, this weekend, 
This is a little side note for free. This weekend, I heard a guy talking about his addiction recovery group, and he talked about the fact that he's not religious, but he is spiritual, and he doesn't attend church or have a Christian community, but belief is really important to him. And this is a phrase that they repeat over and over again in this recovery group. They'll say something like, church is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for people who have already been there. And and what they're trying to say there is a lot of people go to church just because they want to be confident that when they die, they know they're going to go to the good place. But a lot of people quickly forget about what happens at death because none of us are thinking about the moment we die every day of our life. Instead, we're thinking about the hells that we create through our own sinful ways of living. And for people like that, a vague sense of spirituality can be really reassuring, especially when their experience of church preaches a gospel and a salvation that has nothing to do with this life. We need to recover a gospel and a salvation that's for all of life, not just for when we die. So I'm stressing these things over and over again because that's what Paul is doing in Romans. We heard from Mel and Rachel in the Bible class and how for both of them, a class in Romans is what really revitalized their faith. I I hope the same will be true for us. So let's talk about that first term, gospel. You need to remember that Paul's gospel summary in verses 1 through 4 articulates the essence of the gospel. The gospel is the royal announcement that the resurrected Jesus is the messianic king. Now, if you have trouble memorizing these things, I I think this is worth writing down, putting it on a postcard, putting it in your phone, and memorizing so that if someone asks you, what is the gospel, you'll say, the gospel is the announcement that the resurrected Jesus is the messianic king. That's what you see over and over again in the gospels and acts. This is what caused riots. This is what crucified Christ, his claim to be the messianic king. Unlike every other anointed king, when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. Instead, he rose from the dead and became the powerful son of God, and his reign inaugurated an everlasting kingdom. And through that reign, he brings about salvation. He had the kind of reign with the kind of power that was life-giving, marked by the resurrection. And it was that kind of power that was needed to tear down all false gods, to make dry bones live, to free slaves from captivity, to return the displaced from exile, to establish God's kingdom on earth, to bring about a new creation, to conquer sin and death, to remove the Genesis curse, and to bring God's peace to all people, and to bring God's presence to earth forever. That's the kind of salvation that Jesus' kingship brings. And in that salvation that I've just articulated, you can see that it includes many realities. I use those descriptions to talk about Jesus' saving work because throughout the Old Testament, those are the images connected to the term salvation. For first century Jews, salvation was about redemption at the day of the Lord. It was about liberation from Rome. It was about the restoration of God's presence in his dwelling with humanity. So in short, I want to give you a a definition of salvation that, again, I think is worth writing down and reflecting on and perhaps even memorizing. And I've tried to make it memorable for you by putting a ton of R's on that definition. So here's the definition of salvation. 
the biblical authors, use the term salvation to communicate rescue from pagan oppressors, restoration of divine blessing and removal of divine judgment, and the renewal of the covenant relationship between God and humanity. That's what the biblical authors were talking about when they talked about salvation. This kind of salvation extends from all of life, from womb to tomb and beyond. We need this kind of definition of salvation because it's the way that Jesus and the apostles talked about salvation. When they talked about salvation, they talked about rescue from pagan oppression, restoration of beatitude-like blessing, and renewal of the covenant relationship between God and humanity. That kind of salvation, Paul is insisting, can come only through Christ Jesus, only through the proclamation of the gospel. There's no other way to, re- to secure that salvation. Now, for Paul's readers... The claim that Jesus' kingship and the announcement of his kingship, the claim that these things are the mechanism or the power through which God would bring salvation would have come into conflict with claims about salvation from two other sources. Once again, there's a source from the pagan background saying something different, and there's a source from the Jewish background that's been distorted to say something different. So from the pagan background... For these people, they would have known of a Caesar who identified himself as the Lord and a son of the gods who promised to bring salvation and peace to the empire. Caesar proclaimed peace and salvation through his reign to his people. So when Paul is proclaiming Jesus offering salvation and peace through his reign, that would come into conflict with everything these pagan Romans had heard. Now Caesar had a different idea of what peace and salvation entailed, But his promise of peace and salvation shaped his rule in the lives of the people in his kingdom. So for Christians in Rome, Paul's teaching that Jesus alone brings salvation and peace came into conflict with those claims. And I want to suggest it's not that different from when we watch a politician talking about saving America or bringing peace back to America or making this empire great. A lot of those promises resonate with the same things that Uh, the Caesar was saying. And Paul didn't want his Christian readers to put hope in those promises or in that ruler. And you can bet when they rejected Caesar as the one who would bring about peace and salvation, they would receive shame from everyone else in their society. So they needed to reject Caesar's vision for salvation and peace and adopt God's more lasting glorious and infinitely desirable addition of salvation and peace. And that would come only through Jesus. Now, on the other side, for Paul's Jewish readers, there would have been an added dimension for those Christians. Most Jews believed that Torah-keeping and especially circumcision were necessary prerequisites for securing salvation from God. Without maintaining Torah, without circumcision, no salvation. They, many of them, rejected Jesus' claim to be God's messianic king. So they looked for something and someone other than Jesus to secure God's favor and to stand unashamed before God. That's what's going on in Rome. We're not that different from Paul's readers. 
like Roman Christians, were in danger of making the error of redefining salvation to be whatever it is that we desire or whatever picture is given to us. More than that, we're in danger of plugging into the term salvation things that were never promised by God and that ultimately will never satisfy us. And along the way, we look to someone other than Christ to secure it for us. Like the Jewish Christians were in danger of looking to something other than the gospel to secure salvation as promised by God in the Bible. Like so many Christians before us, it's easy to start to treat the gospel as the thing that initiates our salvation, but not the thing that will bring it to completion. So we need to avoid these dangers and affirm with Paul that we will not be ashamed of the royal announcement that Jesus is the resurrected messianic king because it's that message that is God's power to bring about our salvation. If, if we don't tie deeply into those realities, and if we don't really believe in it, then you can bet that we'll live ashamed of that message. Finally, we're at the point where we can consider that final phrase in verse 16. That promise of salvation is for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. It's an inclusive promise. Now, Paul's emphasis on the promise of salvation to Jews and non-Jews makes a lot of sense of everything else in the book of Romans. He's dealing with this natural division. The promise of salvation is available to all. No one is left out. If you look back on verse 14, he lists virtually every social category possible and says that the gospel is for them. The same is true for us. The gospel is for all people. There's only one qualifier that's given, and it's this. The gospel, the promise of salvation is offered to all, but it can be experienced only by those who believe. Although we use that term belief and faith in various non-biblical ways, In Romans, when Paul is talking about belief, he's talking about a commitment to Christ. For Paul, belief is not a vague sense of spirituality or a cold mental assent that Jesus lived or something like that, but a deep conviction that leads to a lasting commitment. This is why Paul so often combines ideas like faith and repentance throughout Romans. So for Paul, responding to the gospel with obedience or belief or the obedience of faith or whatever other terminology he uses involves committing oneself to following Jesus and turning from all other visions of salvation and all other ways of attaining it. And when someone has done that, when someone has a deep conviction that leads to a lasting commitment, there's no reason to be ashamed. Shame has no place for that kind of person. My primary aim in this sermon has been to try to convince you that shame associated with the gospel and Christian identity really does show up in various ways and really does have devastating results, but that we don't have to capitulate to it. We don't have to internalize that shame. I'm trying to suggest that a church that is ashamed of the gospel and ashamed of Christ cannot stay a church for long. A church where the average member consistently internalizes shame in connection to Jesus will not remain a healthy church. Instead, it will shrivel, it will become divided, and the gospel witness will become so debilitated that eventually the church is 
just non-existent, even if people are gathering there. We have to watch out for this. We, we've talked about this a lot in our years as a church revitalization and a replant. And we could become convinced that because we now have a new building with nice seats and a good auditorium and more people are in the room, that, that we're good. We can check out. But if we are not growing in our confidence and commitment to Christ, and instead the seeds of shame are sprouting up in our lives, then we won't stay a healthy church for long. The key solution to that shame problem, the key path to health and vitality, is belief in the power of the gospel and participation in the salvation that it promises. So in conclusion, I want to offer you just one picture of what's possible when a church refuses to internalize the shame, when we resolve to be unashamed of the gospel, when there's a culture at our church of no shame in connection with our Christian identity. When we're resolved to be unashamed of the gospel, we're freed from the shackles of fear and humiliation. And in that freedom, we can imitate Paul in proclaiming the gospel, in fulfilling what he called his obligation to share the gospel in verse 14. So when we refuse to become ashamed of the gospel, we can adopt a posture of pride and confidence and joy in Jesus, in the gospel. And in that joy, we can share it. We can boast in the gospel. We can proclaim it to other people. Now, sometimes when we hear this idea of being obligated to share the gospel... Um, we get thrown off because the term obligation has a lot of negative connotations. And if you grew up in a world like I did, you were maybe publicly shamed if you didn't share the gospel with a certain number of people per week. That's not the kind of obligation I'm talking about. Instead, it's a joyful sharing in a gift with others. So, so here's an illustration of how, what our obligation to share the gospel might look like or, or the logic behind it. Um, when Kate and I got married, her dad pulled me to the side, and gave me a significant check to take Kate out to dinner at this really expensive restaurant called Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. I never would have been able to afford to eat there, um, but he offered me this check. And as soon as I accepted that check, I took on an obligation that restricted me from using it in certain ways. I couldn't use that check to buy the books on my Amazon wish list. I couldn't even use that money to donate it to a good cause. I had one obligation by receiving that gift, and it was to Kate and to invite her into the joy of sharing in a delightful steak dinner. Now, whether it's logical or not, I had to go through the mental gymnastics of refusing to internalize the shame that I felt for being a charity case who couldn't afford to take my wife out for a nice dinner, so my father-in-law had to give that gift to me. So we were sitting with all the rich people in Minneapolis. I felt ashamed of me. In that shame, can I fulfill my obligation well? No. Worse, can I participate in the joy that comes in the obligation? No. It wasn't an obligation that was filled with negative connotations, even though I supplied them. I would suggest that most of the time we're ashamed of the gospel, we're supplying the shame. No one's actually shaming us. 
That obligation was born out of my father-in-law's love for us, and it was an obligation that produced love and joy. This is something like the obligation that we have to proclaim the gospel to others that's often circumvented by our shame because of the gospel. It does cause us some uncomfortability. It requires us to resist the sense of shame, but in that resistance, it allows us to bring other people into our enjoyment of every good thing that is in Christ Jesus. So let's commit to setting aside that shame. Let's commit to being people who are boasting in Christ, or in our language, proud of Jesus, and who are confident that God is proud of us because of Jesus. Let's resist the shame, let's refuse to internalize it, and let's strive to proclaim the gospel and to invite others into this shameless joy that we have in Christ. Now, you might have thought I was about to pray, but I'm going to give you one significant way that I think you can do this. The first step that you might need to take is by showing up to our prayer gathering on Saturday. In that prayer gathering, we're going to consider sections of a sermon by this guy, Charles Spurgeon, called Travailing for Souls. And we're going to think about the confidence that we can have in the gospel and the obligation we have to proclaim it to others. So if you want to prepare for that, keep reading Romans, search Travailing for Souls Spurgeon, and you can read that whole sermon for free. And let's commit together to resist the shame, and to share the message about Jesus with anyone we come into contact to. Let's pray that God would allow us to do this together. Father, we thank you that you've taken away all of our shame. You've given us an opportunity to boast in Christ. So would you remove that shame from us, and would you give us a confident hope in Jesus, knowing that he will cause us to stand wherever we are knowing that he has brought us into your glory, knowing that we will never be put to shame before you. Aid us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.